Lord God, um, thank you for this historical account of these events uh, just under 2,000 years ago. As we reflect on them together, uh, help us to see what they teach us about how you work in the world uh, and how we should trust you uh, to fulfill your purposes in us and through us. Amen. Well, uh, we are nearing, as I'm sure you realize now, the conclusion of our series in Acts. Uh, and we've been seeing, of course, that human opposition has been unable to thwart God's plans. Uh, his message and his messengers continue uh, to fulfill their God-given tasks. Uh, even Paul's pre- and post-conversion life provides a microcosm of this. It's bizarre, isn't it? The persecutor becomes the messenger. And this messenger has been mightily used by God. Uh, he's had three missionary journeys, uh, and now the messenger is also a prisoner, and yet God has watched over him. Uh, he's, been, he's undergone five trials, and all of them have failed to prove anything wrong. Uh, and all the Jewish plans to kill Paul have failed. And now this messenger is moving under God's sovereign hand to his appointed destination, uh, declaring the gospel in Rome. Uh, we saw this in Acts 23, verse 11. Uh, this is what God said to Paul. Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And now that Paul has lodged an appeal to have his case decided by Caesar, uh, the governor Festus has decreed in Acts 25, 12, uh, you have appealed to Caesar and to Caesar you will go. And so, as chapter 27 opens, uh, the journey to Rome commences. It's interesting just to consider, why was it so important for Paul to get to Rome? Well, we know, of course, that Rome was the capital of the then superpower. And in those days, all roads, all roads led to Rome, uh, understandably, because the Romans built them. And that meant that all, Rome, all roads radiated out from Rome. Therefore, in Paul's and God's mind, uh, Rome was a key strategic objective in the spreading of the gospel. Of course, we know uh, the gospel has already preceded Paul. Uh, he was not the one to found the church in Rome. But the point is this. If Rome could be thoroughly evangelized, and if the church enlarged and strengthened and fired with a missionary zeal and passion, what an amazing radiating center for the gospel it could become. And hence, Paul has written his letter to the Romans, and now he desires to visit the Roman Christians and the city. But still formidable hurdles and dangers lie ahead. Uh, with King Agrippa's cross-examination of Paul now concluded, uh, Festus dispatches Paul for Rome. Uh, he is one of a group of prisoners under the charge of a Roman centurion named Julius. However, it's now September, and the northern hemisphere summer is past and winter now beckons. The safe sailing season is nearing its end, and the favorable weather window is closing. Uh, God has thus far protected Paul against human opposition. But does God's protection extend to include natural catastrophe and threats? So let's look more closely at what happens before drawing out uh, some lessons for us today. So let's look more closely at chapter 27. 
Uh, no ship seemed to be available to transport the prisoners direct to Italy, hence the first leg of the trip is undertaken on a ship bound for the North Aegean port of that tricky place to name, Adramitium. I had a bit of uh, forewarning that it was going to be a tricky one. So uh, here we have it. Um, they set out uh, probably from Caesarea to start with and then up, traveling along the, uh, the coast in Asia Minor. Uh, there's Adramitium. Uh, the ship is going to go. It's not going to go direct to Italy. So this is the first leg of their journey. Uh, at Myra, uh, the, fen- the centurion, uh, then finds what he's been looking for, uh, a ship that is going up to Italy. It's actually come from Alexandria down here. This is the, uh, the breadbasket of the world and uh, it's carrying grain uh, ultimately up to uh, Italy. It's a grain ship, we're told. So uh, they, travel, they transfer onto this larger vessel. Uh, but instead of continuing west along the lower end of the, uh, the Aegean Sea, uh, the winds are not favorable for that, and so they have to track uh, southwest towards Crete. Uh, time is lost such that it... Um, they don't get there until after the fast uh, that they arrive in this port in Fairhavens in Crete. And the fast actually refers to uh, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which um, in AD 59 was the 5th of October. So they're getting closer and closer to the winter. Now it is here that Paul attempts his first intervention in chapter 27, verse 10. He says this, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo, and to our own lives also. But Paul's warning of impending disaster is not heeded by the centurion. Rather than remain in fair havens, uh, the ship attempts to track west along the Crete coast to berth in Phoenix for winter. However, ill fortune strikes. Uh, it's caught by a storm of hurricane force and is blown out into the heart of the Mediterranean. Uh, the ship is driven along helpless before the storm, And after several days, all hopes of being saved are lost. And that is until Paul intervenes a second time with this dramatic announcement in verse 21. He says this, Men, uh, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Uh, Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Uh, Last night, an angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island." And after 14 days, true to Paul's prediction, uh, the ship nears land. Having been trying to get to Phoenix, they're blown by this northeaster out into the heart of the Mediterranean. And eventually, after 14 days, they come to uh, Malta, although at the time they don't realize it is Malta. Uh, By this point, Paul's stock amongst his fellow seafarers is rising. And his words now carry more weight with his co-travelers. Verse 33. Uh, For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. Uh, You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive, and not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. 
Uh, now they happily comply. And in their attempt to run the ship aground on the beach, they strike a sandbar and they are stuck fast. And with the shore now tantalizingly close, a new threat to the prisoners emerges. Uh, Roman law stated that soldiers would forfeit their lives if prisoners in their custody escaped. And so to save their bacon, the soldiers now prepare to kill all the prisoners, including Paul. And yet, this time, it is the centurion who intervenes. He is the one who decides that Paul's life and the lives of the other prisoners will be spared. And so, Paul's prediction comes to pass. All make it safely to shore, and no one loses their life, only the ship is lost. Having survived the storm, firstly, and then the soldiers, secondly, a third threat to Paul's life now emerges. On gathering brushwood for a fire, uh, Paul is bitten by a lethal snake. Initially, the the islanders conclude uh, that this is the outworking of natural justice. Uh, Look at chapter 28, verse 4. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hands, they said to each other, Oh! This man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, uh, justice has not allowed him to live. And yet, when no ill harm befalls him, subsequently, uh, they come to a different conclusion. Uh, He must be a god. Fickle lot. So, uh, the apostle then spends the three months of winter from mid-November to mid-February in Malta, a winter holiday. Uh, He's taken in by the chief official of the island, Uh, Publius, and his apostolic powers are put to good use. Uh, He heals uh, the sick uh, in Publius's household and then in the whole island. And no doubt during that time, of course, that would have given him plenty of opportunity to declare the gospel to that island. So that's what's happened. Uh, What then should we take away from it? Uh, What is the major lesson that we are intended to learn from this? And the main and central point, I think, inevitably concerns God's providence, his sovereign rule over everything. He is the one, in the words of Ephesians 1 verse 11, who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Uh, We see here that God rules supreme, even over the natural catastrophes of life. Uh, God will see that even natural forces will not frustrate his purposes. Not only has God preserved Paul against the murderous plot of the Jews, he's also spared him from the lethal power of a storm, from the swords of soldiers, and from the venom of a snake. As the sea voyage progresses, uh, Paul moves, doesn't he, from being a peripheral figure whose advice is ignored Uh, to a central figure who directs events with this calm authority. Uh, I like this adaption of that famous line in uh, Rudyard Kipling's poem. Uh, If you can keep your head when all others around you are losing theirs, you obviously haven't understood the seriousness of the situation. (laughs) Now, this is not the case uh, with Paul. He understands that he is in grave mortal danger. And yet, he remains unflappable. What is the source of his calm confidence in the face of looming catastrophe? Paul's strength lies outside of himself. 
It lies in God's promise and God's word. God's promise and God's word are the foundation of Paul's confidence in the face of looming, seeming disaster. Uh, We know, of course, that the angel has appeared to him, and the angel has assured him that he and his shipmates will all survive. And he now encourages his fellow travelers to respond as he has to God's word. Look at verse 25 again. Paul says this, So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will, be, it will happen just as he told me. Paul was calm and confident in the face of what would seem to be a very, very precarious and dangerous situation. And it begs the question of each of us, uh, how composed are we when either catastrophe or maybe just minor irritations come our way? Do we display that same calm serenity that Paul had? Uh, Maybe we feel that uh, Paul had an unfair advantage. Maybe we would say, well, if an angel appeared to me with an assurance that all be well, surely uh, I'd remain serene and unflustered. Uh, The reality is this. We may not have an angel appear to us, but we do have the promises of God. And that provides the foundation, the same foundation that Paul had. Uh, We saw it in Romans, uh, didn't we? Romans 8.28. And we know uh, that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God has given us his word. Uh, God has promised he will bring us home to heaven and that nothing will separate us from his love on that journey. God has ordained the number of days for our life. Until that final day has come, we are invincible. God has promised he will provide all we need. Not all we want, but all we need. And we can therefore rest in his provision. When we are under pressure, are we as composed as Paul was? I ask the question, do I live as a person to whom God has made those promises? Are the promises of God the source of my composure in times of difficulty? Uh, Stress, danger, catastrophe, and opposition, they're all part and parcel of life in a fallen world. And in different ways, uh, all people face these pressures. Christians are no exception, but in addition to these, as we've seen in the the video about the persecuted church, Christians also have additional worries and concerns often. They suffer sometimes for their faith. So for us, life is full of dangers, it's full of toils, and it's full of snares. And yet God is still sovereign over our lives, and he will bring us home. On the 10th of May, 1748, a man named John Newton captained a ship off the coast of Africa which was hit by a similarly lethal storm to what Paul weathered. And John Newton, on his ship, cried to God for mercy, and amazingly he, like Paul, was delivered. And of course, he later wrote that incredible hymn, Amazing Grace. And it may well be that as he wrote that hymn, 
he was reflecting on both his and Paul's experience of being caught in a storm. When he pens those now famous lines, through many dangers, toils and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. So, uh, the main point we take away for this uh, is trusting in God's providence, His providential control over our lives. But secondly and briefly, uh, there is another application which comes out of this passage, and it's concerning what I call uh, the retribution principle. Uh, We see it falling from the lips of the islanders after Paul has been bitten by the snake. Uh, Chapter 28, verse 4 again. Uh, This man must be a murderer, for though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Uh, The retribution principle states this. Bad things happen to bad people. Or to put it another way, if something bad happens to me, Uh, then it must be payback for something bad that I have done. Uh, The logic goes like this. This is the retribution principle worked out. If I do good, uh, I will get good. If I do bad, I will get bad. Uh, If I do good but get bad, then God must be bad. And if I do bad but get good, then God must be a joke. Uh, If you find that hard... Difficult to process, I'll put it again in your your outline in the sermon in the sheets. Uh, This belief, the retribution principle, lurks in the hearts of everybody, I would suggest, both spiritual and secular people. Uh, Secular people talk, of course, of uh, karma. Uh, You'll often hear people saying, uh, what goes around comes around. Uh, They're saying there's this unwritten law that decrees that eventually uh, we will receive payback for bad things we have done. Uh, Christians can hold this same belief, but it's just a Christianized version of it. Uh, They attribute it to God rather than to some nebulous force. But nevertheless, Christians can also still harbor the retribution principle in their hearts. Uh, We see it alive and well in Jesus' disciples. Uh, Look at John 9, uh, verse 1. Uh, They say this to Jesus. Uh, As he, that is Jesus, went along, he saw a blind man from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, uh, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Uh, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. So you see, uh, the disciples were thinking, retribution principle, was this blind man born blind because of his sin or his parents? And Jesus is very clear, neither but he was born blind so the work of God might be displayed in his life. Jesus challenges their retribution principle. Uh, Some people may point to the case of King David in the Old Testament in support of the the retribution principle. Of course, he sins in his adultery with Bathsheba, and God decrees that the child conceived will die. But this was a unique situation and not the outworking of a general principle. Uh, David was a unique person in God's purposes. He was the anointed one, the Messiah. And he was that specific person who, for this specific sin, receives a specific punishment. But you see, the point was, if that punishment for David was applied generally, which of us would have children? 
Uh, it's the book of Job, of course, which reflects on this question of why bad things happen uh, to seemingly good people. And the book of Job plunges the knife into the heart of the retribution principle. Uh, we see the retribution principle on the lips of Job's comforters. They say to him, Job, this disaster must have befallen you because of your sin. And when we hear their counsel, uh, don't we think to ourselves, they're probably right. It seems to resonate and ring true. Uh, what they're articulating is this belief which has been everywhere throughout time. And yet the point is this, they are wrong. Uh, the book of Job provides the vantage point from heaven which the Job's comforters don't have. Uh, we know, of course, from that heavenly perspective that in terms of God's verdict, Job was a good man. We know that Satan comes to Job, uh, to God, and asks for permission to test him and to see if his faith is nothing more than trusting in God when everything goes well. And God permits Satan to test Job, to, to afflict him, to take away even his children and his flesh, but not his life. And of course, Job does suffer, but it is not the outworking of a retribution principle. He's not suffering for bad things that he has done. Uh, when Job finally gets an audience with God, uh, God rebukes Job's friends. Uh, God refutes the retribution principle, but he also refuses to answer the question as to why Job suffered. In the final chapters of the book of Job, uh, God poses rhetorical question after rhetorical question to Job. Where were you when I flung the stars into space? Who are you to question me? The point is this. During this life, we will get questions that we can't answer. Uh, this side of heaven, we may never know why God allowed something painful to happen to us. Uh, like Job, we tend to question God. And yet, like Job, we should also repent and acknowledge that God's ways are beyond our comprehension. At the end of it all, Job's response was this, Now that I know you, I repent. Now that I know you, I repent. God doesn't live in the box of the retribution principle. God's purposes may be beyond figuring out, but we do know that God is good. And he calls us to a quiet, <coughs> courageous confidence in his providential watch over our lives, just like the Apostle Paul had on that ship. Romans 11 summarizes it beautifully. Let's close with these words. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that he should repay, God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we see Paul living out 
quiet, serene confidence in the face of what would seem inevitable disaster. Uh, thank you for that challenging example of living out a faithful response to your promises and your word and your providential guard over our lives. Help us, we pray, uh, to live like Paul, trusting in your word, trusting in your promises, and not being hasty to draw conclusions from events which befall us or our loved ones, but trusting that ultimately you are working out your good purposes. Amen.